just to get you oriented of where we're at. Uh, Sunday mornings together as a church for several months now. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark together. And so this morning, you can go ahead and get your Bibles and you can turn to Mark chapter 8. Our text today is Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And we're about to read that in a few minutes. I just want to say something really quick before we get started. I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you that something that we know from God's Word about every single person in this room. I want you to think about this. Look at me for just a second. Every single one of us are created beings that are absolutely dependent on the Word of God for our existence. That's Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4. Jesus told us, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how He set it up. We are created beings dependent on hearing from God. Okay? And then God solves this problem that we had. Okay? We're dependent on every word that comes from His mouth. And so God solved this problem and gave us a book. This is the breath of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. So I want to remind you today of why we're here. We're here to hear from God. You need to hear from God. I need to hear from God. We're created beings. We can't change this. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God solved this problem and He gave us a book. And our only hope of anything good coming out of the next hour and a half is to open this book and to ask God to bless the teaching of His Word so that we can hear from God. We need to hear from God every single day, every single week corporately. And that's, that's our only hope and that's what we're about to do. So we're about to read the Word of the living God together. This is the most important thing that's about to happen all day long in your life. It's the next five or six minutes where we get to read this passage from God's Word. And so I want to ask you to prepare yourself to be addressed by God Himself. Let's read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22, and we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. Here we go. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Him a blind man and begged Him to touch him. And He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when He had spit on his eyes and laid His hands on him, He asked him, Do you see anything? And He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid His hands on His eyes again and He opened His eyes and His sight was restored and He saw everything clearly. And He sent Him to His home saying, Do not even enter the village. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we do come to You, God, and we acknowledge our need. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are not for ourselves. We're not created for ourselves, Lord. You made us for You. You made us to declare Your praise. You made us, Lord, uh, with a dependence to hear Your Word, God. And we just cry out to You, Lord, that You would do Your work among us this morning. We ask... Holy Spirit, that You would drive Your words into our hearts. That You would reveal Christ to us from Your Word. Lord, take it past our intellect. Let, it, let Your Word pierce our affections this morning. Lord, we ask that we would think right thoughts about Jesus as a church, as individuals. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us to feel right things about You, Christ. Help us to be full of zeal, full of love, full of fear toward You, Lord Jesus. God, we ask You to come feed Your church. Come feed us with bread from Your mouth, Lord, from Your Word. God, we pray that You would help us, God, to have ears to hear. And God, I ask You for Your help, Lord, that You would allow me to preach Your Word and the strength that You supply so that in all things You get glory. Lord, we're confident in You, God. You have commanded us to come to You and we're confident, Lord, that You're going to do what You said You'd do. You'd feed Your sheep. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, today we're going we're gonna to jump into a new section in Mark's Gospel. I'm going to get us oriented for just a second. Today, in chapter 8, starting in verse 31, we're going to walk into a new section. Danny Aiken calls this section the Great Discipleship Discourse of Jesus. And so, for the next few weeks, however long this takes us to go through this section, this will go from chapter 8, verse 31, all the way to the end of chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, we'll enter into the final week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. So this section that we're going to start today is going to carry us into the very last, into the very last week of Jesus' life. Now, here's what you need to know about this section. It's called the Great Discipleship Discourse because three times in this section, Jesus is going to explicitly and plainly tell His disciples, I'm about to die. I'm about to be crucified. They're going to kill me. And then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. He does it three times in this section. And all three times, right around that teaching about the cross and the resurrection, He gives the disciples a call. And He teaches them about the cost of discipleship. About the cost of following Him as Lord. So, what 
there's this is the this is most clear. This section that I'm talking about is most clear in the Gospel of Mark, where you see the the three teachings of Jesus with the call to discipleship. And so, over the next few weeks, Mark intends that we see at least three things about Christ. Okay, and Jesus is going to bring this up over and over and over again. So be paying attention for this today and over the next few weeks. The first thing is, who is Jesus? Who is He, really? What is His identity? The second thing is, why did He come? What's His purpose? What's He about to do? And then the third thing, third thing that he, we're going to see is, what does He demand of His followers? Who is Jesus? What did He come to do? And what does He demand of His followers? So before we dive into this passage today, let me remind you about the importance of seeing Jesus rightly. Thinking right things about Jesus. Thinking right things about His identity. Thinking right things about His purpose. Thinking right things about His demands. John Stott, this is a famous quote from his book, Basic Christianity. He says, Christianity is Christ. Take Christ from Christianity and there's nothing left. Okay? And so the identity of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the call of Jesus, this is central to your understanding of who Jesus is and what He's done. This is central to Christianity. We must see Him rightly. The identity of Jesus is central to the message that the church, us, that we announce to the world. We must have this clear. You must be clear on who He is, what He's come to do, and what He demands of the world. Throughout this gospel, if you've been paying attention, chapter 1 up to this point in chapter 8, you see every once in a while you'll see the disciples and it's almost like they get a flash of revelation about who Jesus is. And just for a split second you'll think, they finally got it. And then a chapter later he'll rebuke them and say, do you still don't understand? You still don't get it. Okay? And you've seen that happen several times. And something distinct is going to happen in this passage today. Many people refer to this as the hinge in the Gospel of Mark. So right in the middle of Mark's Gospel, you have this hinge where Jesus' his identity is revealed very plainly to the twelve. And we're going to see more of this. Last week, Ryan taught us about spiritual blindness toward Christ. This is the context that this passage falls in. So we're going into this text, but something happened right before it that's about spiritual blindness. And I'll read a verse to you. This is uh, Mark chapter 8, 17 and 18. This is the context of what we're about to jump into. Jesus says this to His disciples. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? And so you see the rebuke of Jesus. These men have been with Him over and over and over again. And they still don't get it. And He rebukes them for it. So spiritual blindness is the background for our text today. He just rebuked the disciples for not seeing Him rightly. Do you have eyes and you don't see? And then the very next thing in the Gospel of Mark is a miracle about Jesus healing someone's blindness. Okay, Do you think there's something to that? I do too. And we're going to jump into that in just a minute. So let's begin with this miracle healing of Jesus. He's about to heal a man of blindness in the context of spiritual blindness in the Gospel of Mark. Let's start with verse 22. We're going to walk through this passage together. Verse 22 through verse 26. This is Jesus healing of this blind man. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and he had spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, and asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. 
Then Jesus laid His hands on him again and He opened His eyes. His sight was restored and He saw everything clearly. And He sent him to His home saying, do not even enter the village. Okay, now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that this is a very similar healing to where Jesus heals the deaf mute man at the end of Mark chapter 7. If you weren't here, just note that for yourself. This is very similar to the healing where Jesus heals a deaf mute man at the end of Mark chapter 7. Let me give you some similarities of those two, those two healings. First similarity is this. In both stories, some friends brought both men to Jesus and begged Jesus to lay His hands on them and heal them. Okay, and we've already talked about this once, but I'll give you these reminders. These friends stand as pictures of the church in these stories. They're, they're like living parables that are meant to proclaim a message about Jesus. So the church, these friends stand as pictures of the church in these stories. And our job, according to this text, is to bring lost humanity to the feet of Christ and beg Jesus to lay His saving hands on sinners. The second similarity is that the first thing that Jesus does in both stories is He isolates these men. It's the first thing He does. This is a picture of the compassion of Christ. This is a picture of Jesus is not just the exalted Lord of the universe. He's also the personal Savior. He gives one-on-one attention to the needy, to sinners like you and like me. Second, third similarity is this, that Jesus enters into the thought world of both of these men and He speaks a form of sign language. He gives them communication that they can understand. And so for this miracle, Jesus spits and He puts His hand and spit on this man's eyes. And you're thinking like, what is that all about? What are you just spitting His eyes? What's that all about? Okay, spit was used in ancient medicine, in ancient cultures as medicine. So when Jesus spits and lays His hands on this man's eyes, the message that He was to communicate to this man was, I'm about to heal your eyes. He was giving him communication that he could understand. He was entering into this man's world. This is the same exact thing that he did when he plugs his fingers into the deaf man's ears and then unstops them. He's communicating in, in, in a way that they can understand. And the final similarity is this. Both miracles are a fulfillment to the prophecy in Isaiah 35 verses 4 and 5 which says this. Behold, your God will come He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So God had made a promise in Isaiah 35 that He was going to come and save His people. God was coming to save His people. And the evidence that we know that that prophecy was to be fulfilled was something was going to happen. And what that, what that verse lays out for us is that the blind would see and that the deaf would hear. This is, this is intentional. The Holy Spirit gave us these two miracles. Jesus heals this, this deaf man. Jesus heals this blind man. And the point of these two miracles are that Jesus is the Isaiah 35 God that's come to save His people. He's the God that's come to save His people. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. So these miracles are very similar. And I want you to see that. Intentional by Mark. But this miracle is also unique because Jesus touches this man twice. Jesus touches this man twice in this story. So Jesus touches him the first time and there's only partial results. And this man can't even tell the difference between trees and humans. He has dim vision, vague vision. Okay? And so how are we supposed to understand that? How are we supposed to think about that? 
Okay, so is this case of blindness, is it such a difficult case that even Jesus couldn't get it the first go around? That is the silliest interpretation of the Bible that I've ever heard. Absolutely not. That is not the case that this was too hard for Jesus to heal. Okay, so why the two-step process? He could have healed this man in a nanosecond. Why the two-step process? And so what I want you to see is that this whole thing falls together like a story. And that's exactly what Mark is revealing to us. It's a story of Jesus. It has a context. It has a purpose. Jesus intended to use this two-stage healing as an object lesson. This miracle is a metaphor of spiritual blindness gradually fading away. So Jesus was using this, this sign with this man to illustrate what He was about to do with His disciples. Their vision, their understanding of Jesus was dim. And He was about to bust it wide open that they could see clearly, that they could see rightly. This is a picture of what He's about to do. To clear up any confusion that may remain in your mind. Okay, let me just say this. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? Even Jesus couldn't heal this man the first time around. Even Jesus couldn't cast that demon out when he, when he first said it. Any sentence, this is a side, side road, any sentence that you ever start with the phrase, even Jesus can't, if you don't finish the sentence with sin, you're in trouble. Because that's about the only thing that Jesus can't do. Okay? Okay, so to clear any of that up, Jesus touches this man the second time, and the results of the second touch are clear in verse 25. It says, His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So this is a story, and it really happened. Okay, When I say it's a parable, I don't mean he made it up. I mean he really happened, but I also mean that it points to something bigger than this man. Okay, It's a living parable, a metaphor. So Jesus, when he heals this man, he showed himself to be Lord over physical blindness. And in just a few minutes, we're about to see Jesus expose Himself as Lord over spiritual blindness. He's able to open physically blind eyes. He's able to open spiritually blind eyes. So just as Jesus brought this physical man to sight, He's about to bring spiritual sight to His disciples. This is why these two stories happen side by side. This is why you have this rebuke for not seeing Jesus rightly. And then this parable, this story about a healing. And then the very next thing that follows is this confession about Christ. This is, the, this is why these stories are side by side. So let's unpack this second story. Verse 27 says this. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? So they're on the way away from where Jesus performed this first miracle to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus turns to His disciples and He pierces them with this question. And what I want you to see about verse 27 is that Jesus is asking a question regarding the crowds. Not regarding the disciples. He's saying, who do the crowds say I am? Who do the masses say I am? Verse 28, they told Him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So before you even examine all of these, notice that every one of the, of the three examples He just gave us, they're positive things. What, when He said, who do they say that I am? No, no one said, they say you're the son of Satan. These are positive affirmations toward Christ. Do you see that? Some say you're, Eli- some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. Okay? So if you summarize 
the masses and the crowd's view of Jesus, they're basically saying, Jesus is a prophet. Because John was a prophet, Elijah was, or maybe he's another prophet. So the crowds are saying about Jesus, he's a prophet. Okay? This is not enough. This is not enough. Think about this. It's not enough to have positive thoughts about Jesus, to have warm thoughts about Christ. Think about your culture. Okay, think about how many people will give lip service to Christ. Oh, he's a great moral teacher. Yes, he's a great man. Oh, we, we should probably do a few of the things that Jesus has told us to do. It's not enough to have positive thoughts about Jesus. The crowds have positive thoughts about Jesus. Okay? But they failed to honor Jesus because they misrepresented Christ. And the identity of Jesus is just as misunderstood. 2,000 years later, just as misunderstood as it was in the story. Think about this. They said he was a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. That's what the crowds say. Prophets are messengers from God with a message. So what's the problem with calling Jesus a prophet? The problem is, is that the prophets announced this message that culminated and pointed to the message itself, Christ. Okay? And so Jesus is not just another messenger. Jesus is the message itself. He's, he's, the, he's the final revelation of God to humanity. And I want you to see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He's the one that, the, that all the prophets pointed to. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this, Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. The last message, the final revelation of God to humanity is Jesus Christ. He's it. He's not another messenger. He's the message itself. So the crowd's got it wrong about Jesus. Look how Jesus handles this in verse 29. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? So they have this conversation about what other people think, and then he turns and looks them straight in the face, and Jesus makes this personal, and he pierces them with a question, and he says, who do you say that I am? We're no longer talking about popular opinion, what your parents think, what your spouse thinks, what your friends think. Jesus looks at these men, and he pierces them with this question, who do you say that I am? This is the central question that you must deal with today. Every single person on planet earth that's ever existed, this is the central question that they'll have to deal with for eternity. Who do you say that Jesus is? How are you going to answer this question? Do you know that the eternal destiny of every human being hangs on how you answer that question? No one can answer it for you. You have to answer it for yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? You will only be saved if you answer this question correctly. Who do you say that Jesus is? So Jesus asked this to his disciples. And up in this point, we've already talked about this, their thoughts about Jesus, who Jesus is, they've been spotty at best. You'll think just just you'll think you'll see in one place and you'll think they finally got it, and then the next chapter they're they don't have it. They don't got it. And so verse 29 continues, Peter answers the question. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So Jesus asked them the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter nails this question. He says, you're the Christ. This term means the anointed one of God. The Christ 
Uh, that's the Greek word, or the, uh, the same Hebrew word as the Messiah, the Christ Messiah. That's the same thing. Okay? This term began to describe the deliverer. The Christ, the Messiah, there was a deliverer that was promised all throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, that there was one coming He was going to deliver. And they called Him the Christ. They called Him the Messiah. And Peter turns to Jesus and said, That's who you are. You're the long-awaited promised one. You're the deliverer, the Messiah, the King that's supposed to end all kings, the one that's coming to put everything right. Jesus, that's who I think you are. You're the Christ, the Son of God. Consider that Peter is the one that says this. He looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, you're the Christ. Peter is an Orthodox Jewish man. Okay, this means that in, what's, what's his worldview? What's his background? How's he come into this statement? From his mother's knee, from a little boy, this man grew up in Israel that was under Roman domination. And their only hope before God is that God had said, God had promised, there's a king coming from the line of David. He's going to ascend to the throne and he's going to reign forever. He's going to be the king that ends all kings. How many times do you think Peter would have heard of this over and over and over again? Over and over and over again, he heard about this one coming in power that would ascend to God's throne and conquer all evil and set all things right. And Peter turns to Jesus and he says, you're that one. You're the Christ of God. And then think about this. Everything that, that Peter knew about this Christ was that he was coming with thunder. He was coming with power. He was coming to conquer. And he stands before Jesus. And at this point in this gospel, Jesus has no earthly majesty, no power, no, no fame, no wealth. He has nothing of what Peter has been taught his whole life that the Messiah would have. Jesus stands there in weakness and he has, he's, he's, he's come on the scene from relative obscurity. And Peter looks at Jesus and says, you're the Christ. So I want you to see this wasn't off the cuff. This was the last thing that Peter would have been programmed to say about Jesus. This is miraculous. This is a revelation to Jesus from, to, uh, to Peter from God. That Peter has been shown that Jesus is the promised one. I believe that this confession represents the first touch of Jesus. That Peter's eyes are open. He sees like a tree, but he can't distinguish it from a human being. He sees dimly and vaguely. He sees Jesus dimly and vaguely. Even in the next chapter, Mark chapter 9, verse 32, these disciples, they still don't understand. So I believe that this confession of Jesus as the Christ represents the first touch of Jesus. And I believe that His disciples, Peter and His disciples, they'll need the second touch of the resurrection of Jesus before they see Jesus rightly. It's not until after the resurrection until it's crystal clear in their mind who He is. And so this whole gospel becomes this parable about Jesus opening their eyes to who He is. He's the Christ of God. Verse 30, And He strictly charged them to tell no one about Him. This is odd, right? If you're thinking, he finally nailed it and he finally got it and the first thing that Jesus says is don't tell anybody about that. Don't tell anybody what you just said. So think about this. Peter believes that Jesus is the Messiah and the Christ and we know that Jesus agreed with him. If you read Matthew 16, he has an account of this same story and the first thing that Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16 is, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. 
So Jesus looks at Peter and says, good job. And then the very next thing he says, don't tell anybody about this. Okay? Why? Because Peter and everyone else in Israel had really bad connotations to what this word Christ and what this word Messiah meant. They had some really bad ideas attached to it. And Jesus is about to clarify what this word Christ means before the wrong message about Him gets spread abroad. So He says, tell no one. And from this point on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus begins to clarify what it means for Him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Promised One. Listen to the first thing He does in verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So there were many prophecies in the Old Testament about this Messiah. I told you there's many of them. Okay? And there, there were several strands running into this, this promised one, this deliverer, multiple layers to it. Okay? He was going to be a king. He was going to be a shepherd. He was going to be a redeemer. He was going to be a deliverer. But the one thing that they didn't see is that this Messiah, this Christ, was destined to suffer. It was a mystery. It was hidden to them. They weren't looking for it. And this is the first thing that Jesus attacks in their minds. Jesus addresses Himself to His disciples as the Son of Man. That phrase needs to be a beautiful phrase to you. Okay, Son of Man is a, is a reference to a famous Old Testament prophecy about the Christ in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, we have a promise from God that there's going to come this Son of Man and He's going to reign as a king over an all-nations kingdom that will never, ever end. Jesus just called Himself that. I'm the all-nations king that's going to reign over a kingdom that will never end. But look what He said. He looks Him right in the face and He says, the Son of Man must suffer. He took that exalted, conquering figure and He said it's destined that the Son of Man suffer. He's busting up bad ideas about who He is. The Daniel 7 Son of Man must suffer many things. This is the plan of God. This is what the disciples don't understand. This was the mystery that was hidden. Jesus would suffer as the King of all kings. If you do this, if you don't, don't worry about it. If you do this, take a little note and circle that word must in your Bible. Jesus didn't say it'd be a good idea if the Son of Man suffered. He says that the Son of Man must suffer. This is not just something that Jesus is going to volunteer Himself for. He just told us that this is destined. This is the eternal plan of God that God has determined to redeem a people for Himself. And the only way this is going to happen is if this conquering King, this promised one, suffers. He must die. He must be rejected. He must die. And three days later, He must rise. This is what Jesus is trying to proclaim to His disciples. He must suffer. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22, there is no remission of sins. It's a legal necessity that the Son of God, the Son of Man, would suffer. It's a legal necessity. This is how He's going to make atonement for man's sins. Jesus spoke of the necessity of His suffering. with a, He spoke it plainly. That's what it said in the first part of verse 32. 
He spoke it so plainly that it offended his disciples. They thought for a second that Jesus was off his rocker. Listen to what happens. Remember, we've already said this. These men were programmed from a very young age. Their only hope was God's promised one. Their only hope was this Messiah. And they thought that He was coming in power and that He was going to crush the Romans. He's going to restore His kingdom on the earth. So when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, they had no grid in their minds that God's King would ever be put to death. They had no grid for that. As like oil and water in their minds. They square peg, round hole. It wouldn't go in. They had no grid for it. Peter was offended that temporary weakness and suffering, this was at the heart of Jesus' plan as king. Verse 32 continues. It offended them. Verse 32 says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Quick side road. This is a picture of the fallibility of man. I don't know how much you're around people that talk like this, but some people talk with spiritual pride about that they are the anointed of God, that they're favored, that they had the favor of God. What I want you to see is this is a picture of the fallibility of man. Three verses earlier, in verse 29, we know that Peter was under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus said, Blessed are you, you said the right thing. I am the Christ. And three verses later, how long does that take you to read? 15 seconds? 15 seconds later, three verses later in God's Word, He went from the under the influence of the Holy Spirit to under the deception of Satan. And three verses of the Bible. Okay? So you can beat your chest all you want about you're anointed and you're the favorite of God, but you need to know that you're no better than that. We're fallible outside of Christ. We need Christ. That's a side road. Peter rebukes King Jesus. Can you imagine this? He's convinced that he's the king, the, the king to end all kings. And the first thing he does to inaugurate him is rebuke him. Peter rebukes King Jesus. We know from Matthew 16 what he said to Jesus. It would have sounded something like this. No way, King Jesus. This will never happen to you. No way, King Jesus. This will never happen to you. Jesus immediately perceived this as the work of Satan himself in Peter's life. And you see that. Jesus is actually being tempted with the words of Peter. Maybe you've never thought of it about like Jesus is being tempted with Peter's words and immediately Jesus realizes that this temptation has originated from Satan himself. Peter basically says, Jesus, you are out of your mind. You are God's king. You will never die. You will reign forever. You're God's king, Jesus. You're out of your mind. This came as a temptation to Christ. Peter offers Jesus the acquisition of the throne without pain, without agony, without suffering. He says, take the throne, Jesus. You're the king. You're never going to die. This is the temptation of Jesus. And we know that Satan's behind this. Satan, through Peter, offers Jesus Christ the, 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 the crown without the cross. That's a famous saying from J.C. Ryle. Satan offers him the massive temptation. He'd say, you can have the, you can have the crown. You can have your throne, but you don't have to have this cross. You don't have to suffer Jesus. And I want you to see that Satan knows what's about to happen at the cross. He knows. Where did the Son of God destroy the devil? 
at the cross. He knows that the hammer's coming at the cross. He knows that man's sins is going to be atoned for at the cross. And all hell breaks loose on Jesus to tempt Him away from this cross. And I want you to see how Jesus responds. Notice how serious He responds. He calls His own disciple Satan. Not, probably not a good practice for disciple making for you to copy. But I want you to see that Jesus d- does this. He's dead serious. He's offered this temptation and He responds with such authority. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Basically, He says this, get out of my way. I will not be deterred from my mission. I will finish the reason for which I came into this world. I love this picture about Jesus. He says, get behind me. Nothing can stop me. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to make atonement for man's sins. Get behind me, Satan. The Son of Man must suffer. There's no other way around it. In Jesus' mind, He's imparting this to His disciples. There's no other Christ to follow except the crucified Christ. The king that died is the last thing that they were expecting. But think about this. It's the thing that they needed. They didn't expect it. They thought he was coming in power to bust bust them wide open. But they didn't realize that they needed the king to die. Think about if if they would have gotten what they asked for. Think about it if Jesus would have took the crown without the cross. He would have ascended to God's throne and then what would have happened? Psalm 2 tells you what would have happened. He would have struck the wicked with a rod of iron. He would have crushed all sinners under His feet. This is what would have happened if Jesus would have taken the throne without going to the cross. The only way into this King's kingdom is through the cross. He's making atonement for man's sins. The Son of Man must suffer. The King must die. The good news for us is that this really happened. Satan got behind Jesus and Jesus went to the cross and this King died. And what must happen after that? It must happen that three days later, this king rose from the dead. This is our message that we take to the world. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the foundation of Christianity. This slaughtered king and this risen Lord. So Jesus, at this point, He's clarified, this is why I'm here. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. Why is He here? He's going to the cross and He's going to rise again because He's making atonement for man's sins. Third question. What is in a man of his followers? So far, Jesus has driven away false mindsets about his identity. And now you're about to see Jesus clarify what it means to be his disciple. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to drive away false mindsets about what it means to follow him. Verse 34. And calling, to the, crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. All right, let's pause. Jesus is about to drop the hammer. Okay, There are about to be some hard words in the Scriptures that are about to fall. And I want to try to get in front of any really bad interpretations of this type of language in the Gospels. Okay, Maybe you've heard it said before. Yeah, that really hard stuff, that's for the disciples of Jesus. And what happens is you become a Christian first, and then you become a disciple. And what I want you to see is not so according to the Scriptures. Look at, what, look at the audience of who Jesus is about to address. The disciples and the crowds. The demands that Jesus is about to drop on His disciples are the same demands that He drops on the crowds. Okay? So let's get ahead of this bad interpretation. Verse 34 continues. If anyone 
would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus just laid out what he expects of every single person that would ever dream of becoming a Christian. This is the normal Christian life according to Jesus. I'll read it to you one more time, verse 34. If anyone, and yes, that includes you, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Listen to John MacArthur here. He says, Let me say unequivocally that Jesus' summons to deny self and follow Him was an invitation to salvation, not an offer of a second step of faith. The contemporary teaching that separates discipleship from salvation springs from ideas that are foreign to Scripture. Every Christian is a disciple. And then he says the word disciple is used consistently as a synonym for a believer throughout the book of Acts. So Jesus has just told us he's busting away false mindsets about what it means to follow him. And he says no one who is unwilling to deny themselves can legitimately claim to be a disciple of Jesus. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus demands that you pick up a cross This means that Jesus demands that you follow Him even to the point of death. He demands it all. He's the Lord, and He just demanded it all. Listen to John MacArthur again. Those who reject the demands of discipleship prove that they are not redeemed from sin. Those who reject the demands of discipleship prove that they are not redeemed from sin. They are unbelievers. All true Christians follow Christ. J.C. Ryle also comments, we must prove the reality of our faith by carrying the cross after Christ. We must not think to enter heaven without pain and suffering and conflict on earth. And then he says this, if we will not carry the cross, we shall never wear the crown. This is the demands of Jesus to every single person in this room. One more time. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus demanded to be followed. Jesus demanded to be followed, not added to the periphery of your life. He doesn't need your Sunday attendance at church. He he demands to reign over your entire life as a Lord and a King. He sits in no other place. There's no other way to come to Him. These hard demands of Jesus are actually words of love from Christ. You say, why? Why? Because Jesus doesn't want half-hearted people that think they're in the kingdom. He he wants them to realize you're not in the kingdom. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and, and follow me. These are words of love from Christ. Many in the modern church ignore Jesus' warnings. I can remember for many years that I heard the plan of salvation. There was nothing mentioned, nothing mentioned about the cost. Jesus demands that I deny myself. Listen to John Stott here. He says, Thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow Him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of so-called nominal Christianity. It's an illusion. It's a mirage. There is no such thing as a Christianity that's nominal. It's a fuzzy middle and Jesus just sliced it wide open. He said, No. 
You don't understand. I'm driving away these false mindsets. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So what does it mean to deny yourself? Okay? It does not mean that you don't eat sweets for a week. Okay? I guess that is a form of self-denial, but not, that's not what he's calling for here. What does it mean to deny yourself? Jesus is calling anyone and everyone that there's a demand of discipleship that you must turn away from worshiping the false god of self. You must turn away. Isaiah 53 paints a vivid phrase of lost humanity that we turn everyone to our own way. We turn to our own way. We become our own God in our sinfulness. And Jesus says that self must be denied. That false God must be turned away from. We must put to death the idol of I. Put it to death. Denying yourself is the opposite of self-gratification and taking up your cross is the opposite of self-preservation. Listen to this famous words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I say amen to that. Verse 34 in Mark's Gospel, is an, it's an announcement and an invitation of the lips of Jesus that you would join a death march with the Savior. That you would take up your cross and that you would follow Him. This is the only way in. This is the doorway into the kingdom, not the second step. And then, in verses 35 through 38, Jesus gives us the demand in verse 34. And then in verses 35 through verse 38, each of these verses begin with the same word. I want you to see that. They begin with the word for. And these are arguments. These are, he's building off of this command. These are arguments for why you should obey verse 34. Okay, So he could have just told you verse 34 and that would be enough. But we have four arguments from Jesus of why you should do this. And the first one is in verse 35 and it says this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So there's a great paradox in this verse. He's just, are we losing our life? Are we gaining it? What's going on? This is a great paradox in Jesus' mind. He compares denying self and taking up your cross to losing your life. The entrance to be a Christian from Jesus is you have to be willing to lose your life. These are the words of Christ. Everyone who denies themselves in this life for Christ's sake, in order to follow Christ, will gain eternal life. And every single person who plays it safe and considers your own life as more important than Jesus, you'll forfeit Jesus and you'll forfeit eternal life. This is the plain teaching of this Scripture. Every single one of us. Through Jesus' words, we know that these are hard words to hear. But this is the invitation to follow Christ. Think about this. These are hard words, but behind them there's a gracious promise. Think about that. We, we lose our life, but we what? That's not the end of the story. We gain life. It's impossible for us to ever give up more than we gain in Christ Jesus. We gain infinitely more than we could ever sacrifice for Christ. John Piper, he says, we trade sand for gold. And I love that phrase. Jim Elliott reminds us that this is a no-brainer. I say this one twice so you can think through it. He says, that man is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That man is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Yes, 
You have to deny yourself. Yes, you have to take up your cross. Yes, you have to lose your life. But praise the living God. We gain Christ. We get Jesus forever. And this pales in comparison to any price, any sacrifice that we must pay. Hebrews 12.2, this is the way that Jesus thought. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus endured the cross and how did He do it? It says, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and we must be like Him. We have to take up this cross for the joy set before us. What's the joy set before us? We get Jesus Christ. We get to follow Christ. Philippians 3 verse 8 says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We get the greatest prize in Jesus. And we count everything else as garbage in comparison to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. We must endure the cross through the joy set before us. This losing your life and gaining your life, this, this verse 35, think about this. The change that Jesus is describing in a Christian and a true Christian, it's so dramatic that the only imagery that He can use to, to bring out the full force of it is death and resurrection. Have you lost your life? Has this happened to you? Have you lost your life and have you gained your life in Christ? This is the only imagery that he can even think of to picture the Christian life. This is radical new birth. Have you been made a new creation in Jesus? Verse 36, Jesus says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is the next argument. Okay, And I want you to know that's a hypothetical. Because what are the chances that you would actually gain the whole world, right? Okay? So we're on the same page. But let's just say that you did. Okay? Let's just say that you've gained the whole world. And let's just say that you, in your little blip of time on this planet, that you amassed so much money that you made Warren Buffett look like a, like a beggar. Or that you amassed so much power and authority that you made the Roman emperors of old look like slaves. And maybe you get a hundred years. Some people get, you know, long life. So let's say you do because you gain the world. You get maybe 110 years. And you get all this. You get it all. You gain the world. And then what happens? Hebrews 9.27 happens. It's appointed for man to die once and after that to come to the judgment, to receive judgment from God. So you gain the world, and then you die, and then you stand before the judge, and then what happens? God's Word is promised in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, that the soul who sins shall die. God the judge has promised to punish every single sinner outside of Jesus Christ. He's promised to throw them into the lake of fire forever. Eternal punishment from God is promised on the wicked. So Jesus' logic is rock solid. He says, what does it profit? Maybe we got some accountants in this room. What advantage, what, what profit is it for you for this little sliver of time, maybe a hundred years, that you gain it all? And then you enter into eternity and you suffer in hell under the punishment of God the judge forever. What is that profit? For you to gain the world and lose your soul. With these words, Jesus shows us that our soul 
the part of us that lives forever, the part of us that continues after we die, it's worth unsearchable value. It's worth more than the entire world our soul is. So, in Jesus' mind, one argument of why we should deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him, is because you can gain everything that this world has to offer and bust hell wide open forever. And what profit is that? This is the only option that you have. The Savior is coming. He's died for your sins, rose from the dead, and this is His offer to you to be saved. Verse 37. What can a man give in return for his soul? These words remind me of Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. I'll read it to you. It says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and will never suffice. This is a reminder from God's Word that you can never pay for your sins. You can never bribe God the judge to remove this penalty and this promise for what you've done. There's nothing that you can do to save your soul. You need a king to die in your place. Jesus is your only hope. And for this reason, you should deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow this Christ. Verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. Jesus' last warning is heavy. We're talking about eternal judgment again. When Jesus comes with His holy angels. There are two people in eternity. Two categories in this verse. Those who are proud of Jesus Christ and those who are ashamed of Jesus. You see that? Verse 38. And Jesus promises punishment to that group of people who are ashamed of Jesus. This punishment is eternal. J.C. Ryle says, We ought never to be ashamed of Him who died for us on the cross. I say amen to that. He paid it all. How could we possibly be ashamed of Him? But you know our sinfulness. You know that you don't always feel for Jesus what you ought to feel. And for this reason, these words are not warnings about the, the periodic lack of boldness in disciples. These are warnings to false converts. People who have patterns of shame in their life toward Christ. Listen to John MacArthur. He said, Our Lord is talking about false disciples. They consistently deny the Lord either by word or by action. And then he says, Those who fail to live in a way that is consistent with faith in Christ are sent to eternal punishment. So responding to this warning, we dare not be ashamed of Jesus. Great punishment is promised. We dare not love Jesus in secret. Don't fall into that deception that you have this relationship with Jesus and nobody knows about it. That's called shame in the Word of God. He's to be announced publicly. We are to walk proud on this earth to know Him. He's, our, he's the surpassing worth, the treasure in the field that we sell it all just to gain. Some will be ashamed. We know that from this verse. There will be a group of people who stand in eternity that are ashamed of Christ. They're ashamed of His gospel. They're ashamed of His Bible. They're ashamed of His standards, His commandments. They're ashamed of His church. They're ashamed to be associated with His people. There will be a group that's ashamed of Jesus in eternity. And there will also be a group that swears allegiance to Jesus as King with their lips. 
but denies Christ as king with their life. Titus 1.16 says they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They deny Him by their works. Did you know that you can deny Christ with your lifestyle, that you can be ashamed of Christ with your lifestyle? And if that's a settled pattern in your life, you have a great warning in this verse from Jesus that He's going to be ashamed of you forever. Application today is simple. Jesus has taught us in this passage that there is no such thing as a Christ that doesn't suffer. There's no such thing as a king except the crucified one. And He's also taught us that there's no such thing as a disciple except one who takes up his cross and follows Christ. So here's the question for you today. Very simple application. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And not with your word, not just with your words. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ of God, the King to end all kings, the King that came to die for our sins and rose from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is of infinite worth, of infinite value, so much so that you lose your entire life in order just to gain Him? Do you have this exalted view of Jesus? Is He the treasure for you? Are you satisfied in this Christ? So our question is, have you denied yourself? Have you taken up your cross? And have you followed Jesus? Have you done this? I pray that these hard words from this text today would cause every single one of us to freshly examine our life. No exceptions. That we would hear these warnings and these hard sayings and that we would examine our life. I want you to think about a couple of questions. Does your Christianity cost you anything? Does your relationship with Christ cost you anything? Do you take up your cross? Do you bear the cross of Jesus? Does your relationship with Christ bear the marks of authenticity? Are you a real Christian? Are you really a follower of Christ? Or... Are there any in this room that Jesus is trying to blow away these false mindsets that you can follow Him with your lips and be fine forever? He's exploding these mindsets. Is that you today? Jesus' command to you is to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow Him, to lose your life and to find your life in Him. Most of us here today have responded to Jesus' call. I look all over this room and I see brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what happened to me when I was studying this Word? I was freshly reminded of what I signed up for. This is what I signed up for. This is what we signed up for. Let this be a reminder to you today. That you signed up to follow a Christ that demands it all. A Christ that demands that you carry your cross and follow Jesus. This is a fresh warning, fresh reminder to me. Let's close today with one final promise. This is an encouragement to Jesus, to every one of us who've taken up our cross and follow Him. This is in Mark chapter 10. I'll read verses 29 and 30 as we close. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel." who will not receive a hundredfold now 
And this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. We have followed Christ. We have denied ourselves, but we have eternal life. Life forever is in front of us. This is the promise of Jesus. We will never die. We will be with our Lord forever. Praise Jesus for His promise. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for revealing Yourself in the Scriptures. We thank You, God, for this book of Mark, this revelation of Jesus to us, Lord, that You've given us this perfect record of Yourself. God, we pray that You would take Your words today and that You would drive them in our souls. God, we pray that You'd pierce hearts among us today with truths about Jesus. God, we pray that You would take the seed of Your Word and that You would cause it to bear fruit in Your church. And we pray this in Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.